Welcome to episode 165 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Lori Kaplan. She's the VP of Design at Lending Club, but she has an incredible background. Uh, she was at Apple in the 80s and 90s, and then after that at places like Netscape and Netflix and Motorola and Good Technology and AOL and on and on. It was super fun chatting with her, but before we get into that, uh, we want to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. First up, Managed by Q. They are like an operating system for buildings. Yes, they help hundreds of companies in four cities handle everything from catering to IT to cleaning, plumbing, office supply management. Uh, it's a company that was founded by two designers. They believe that design is a core asset to their company. It differentiates them in the market, and they want you to join them. They also are focused on creating good jobs for everyone, including their employees and including their operators, who normally wouldn't be given things like benefits or stock options. But at Managed by Q, they definitely are. Everyone has the opportunity to move up. And they've raised $42.4 million based on that premise. Some of that came from Google Ventures. So Daniel Berka is a mentor who spends time with them weekly. Managed by Q wants you to join them. They're looking for designers to work out of their headquarters in New York City. Of course, they're willing to relocate the right candidate. They need help uh, taking what they're working on to the next level. Uh, they already have traction. They've raised a ton of money. They have a brilliant idea. They're offering a quality service and they just need designers to to come in and help guide strategy to work with the design founders. Uh, it's an incredible opportunity. We're so excited to send people their way. You can learn more at spec.fm slash mbq or go to spec.fm slash slack. Join our Slack team and talk to JT White. He's one of the designers on the team already and he's happy to answer questions kind of you can back channel that'd be cool yep managed by q they are a design-led company that cares about their people and they need your help again go to spec.fm slash mbq thank you once again to managed by q our second sponsor is wayno wayno is one of our favorite agencies that we've ever had the pleasure to work with they're incredible we just spent time with them at xoxo like a huge amount of their team was there we're hanging out with them last night. Yeah, we got to see uh, Gene and Linda. And Ben Mingo. And ben. Uh, what a rad group of people. Why are they sponsoring the podcast? They are sponsoring because they like to listen to it. Uh, they like the people who listen to it, which is you. And they just want you to check out their work. Uh, their website is wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. They have gorgeous case studies. Their dribble is so inspiring everything they're sharing on instagram and twitter is either funny or beautiful design uh can't recommend it enough they're not trying to sell anything they just want you to check out their work uh say hi follow them on twitter if you want to keep up with some of their rebranding work uh their instagram has gorgeous shots of things like their new business cards and some videos that they're working on for marketing really beautiful work they're a hilarious and super talented group of people so it's easy to just like fall in love with their social media accounts I'm very happy to know them and get to see them around. Uh, you should check them out. That's at wayno.co, U-E-N-O dot C-O. And of course, if you're looking for work, just click the careers link in their header and tell them we sent you. Thanks once again to Wayno. And with that, let's get into episode 165 with Lori Kaplan. Hi, Brian and Bryn. Thanks for inviting me today. I'm Lori Kaplan. I'm a design leader, a soccer mom. Well, not anymore but I do have kids. Oh. <laughs> no more soccer. <laughs> gone. They just Two aged ways. out. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Uh, they're young adults now. Mm -hmm. And 
I probably have a lot of other things about me, but maybe that will be revealed in the course of our uh-huh. conversation. Yes, you recently deleted your Twitter bio, which is <laughs> no, it wasn't the canonical recent. way of identifying a human <laughs> in this industry. Uh, what are you working on right now? Right now, I am working on designing the best design org for my company, basically. Which is um, Lending Club. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm working on building out the design team, building out how do people grow their careers at Lending Club? Mm. How do we work in the organization and how do we drive fanatical customer focus for our products? Sure. How long have you been doing that? I've been at Lending, Lending Club, Club about 18 months. Okay. What does fanatical customer focus mean? <laughs> I've never I want, heard I, that said before. I, That's amazing. Yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I cribbed that from a presentation that our engineering department did this week on engineering excellence. I actually call it radical customer focus, mm-hmm. but it means really starting everything from our customer. Mm-hmm. Like that's the person or the people that we are trying to build products to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. Frequently, companies operate based on business metrics or finance metrics or productivity metrics. But I think our best role as designers is to keep the microscope focused squarely on who we're designing for, who we're Mm. creating for, Mm. and making sure that we're actually solving a problem they have. How do you know who you're creating for? Um, Is that like a persona? Is that... Personas are a really interesting tool to help Uh people have a shared understanding. Oh, you guys are smirking. Interesting (laughs) seemed like a diplomatic answer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so have you had Alan Cooper on Design Details? We have not. Oh, You should talk to him about personas. He would be awesome, right? So he created the persona tool and socialized it in the industry and wrote about it. And people have adopted it. And everybody makes up their own story about what a persona is. Mm -hmm. To me, that's why I said it's an interesting tool to help people have a shared mindset about customers. Because it can be a physical artifact that you can refer to and you can Mm -hmm. then use when you create user stories or... Um, any other kind of success metrics you can say does this work for brian Mm -hmm. who is our user of this yes you know feature product flow whatever Mm -hmm. solution a millennial designer trying to make his way in the world a millennial designer trying to make his way in the world (laughs) yeah and those guys probably have a lot of issues right that are common across many users so mm -hmm. that's how we can become fanatically focused on you and your problems (laughs) as a representation of a larger population Got it. So you've been there for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is going on? How are things going? Designing the design org. What's been successful? What's been hard? Um, lots and lots. What's been successful is that the team has grown fairly rapidly. And we've shifted the way we engage with the product teams and the marketing teams so that people are focused on products. When I got to Lending Club, there were a team of six, and they were taking JIRA tickets very late in any product development process and working pretty much at a page level um, and mostly at a visual layer. And so when I got there, I started hiring people with a broader skill set and expanding into sitting down with product managers and developers and marketing people and saying, what problems are we solving? And how can we look at that more holistically? And do we have the right communication throughout this flow? Are we supporting users mm-hmm. and being successful? Those are some very businessy words. Yes. I know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, This is business details. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> Lori Kaplan. <laughs> That'd be a great podcast. I don't know, um, but I could re- <laughs> I could recommend some people that you could have that great podcast. Up and to the right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk more about the chart tool. Which one of you is developing the chart tool? The chart oh, tool. Oh, somebody. It was from one of your podcasts. It was really cool. The chart tool. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. That must Because be we guess. always have to show up and to the right, uh-huh. you know? And so we don't want to recreate that all the time. Hmm. Um, so I started looking, not necessarily for generalists, but people who had a broader experience and a broader skill set. Most of the folks that were at Lending Club when I joined had come out of agencies and didn't have product design or application design or desktop design. You know, they didn't have a broad range of experience. So I looked for people who had more of that and who could get in and really talk about product requirements and what our user needs and understand when and where to introduce research techniques. Was that hard to find people that can fit that bill? No, there's a gazillion designers out there now. What's hard to find is- A gazillion? Yes, Hmm. yes. I mean, there are schools now. There are, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't even have to go to university. There's Hack Reactor, General Assembly, Code, Mm -hmm. you know, all all these places you can learn design skills. And then you can start doing it and you can learn. You can be self-taught. There are university programs. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of ways that designers are coming into the industry. Uh And there's a lot of appetite for designers. I definitely agree with the appetite for designers. I think we've talked to people that go along the spectrum of thinking there's a lot of designers and then people that think there's not even close to enough designers. And then we talk to people who... Well, like, a lot and enough th- are th- not the same I think metric. those are both true, right? There's a lot and there's not enough. Uh-huh, and, yes. and then there's not who do you <laughs> want? So the challenge uh, for me yeah. was finding people who had the skills and experience that I looked for that were a culture fit for the company that were interested in working in a financial services environment. Mm. So that's where it got really challenging. Okay. What are what are you seeing? What kind of skills did you see missing the most from people you talked to? Um, from people I talked to? Oh, the people that we interviewed that we didn't yeah. hire? Yeah. Or even like portfolios you looked over or anything like that. What are people missing right now? So those are those are kind of different questions. Are there Port- gap trends? <laughs> gap trends, yes. Um, portfolios. The thing that I want to see the most in portfolios, and I think designers do the least of, is storytelling. We love to show the final shiny product that we're mm-hmm. really proud of. But I, as a hiring manager, want to understand how did you get there? What were all the iterations you went through? What were the constraints? And how did you make the trade offs? Because that's what we mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so and. There are a lot of people who can make things pretty, but there aren't a lot of people who can make good solutions that function well, that use visual design to support the communication, right? And so I'm looking for storytelling in portfolios and not just a bunch of pretty end stage screens. That's been on my mind lately because I've had people email me and just be like, hey, can you take a look at my portfolio? And you'll mm-hmm. see like the final design on like a 45 degree tilted iPhone with a shadow <laughs> that has parallax scrolling. Burn it all down. Yeah. This isn't a portfolio piece, right? No. This isn't what... Did you put yours up yet again? No, no. I was tweeting all day. Brian had a really good portfolio and it makes me sad that he took it down. Yeah. I was tweeting yesterday about like, what are good product design portfolios? Mm-hmm. And most of the ones I found have some visuals, but usually it's like photos of sketches or wireframes and then just words. That's it. And then right. maybe at the end you have like a download the app button or something like that to like use it. 
There have to be some stickies in there too. Come on. Sticky. Designers love their stickies and our affinities, right? How did you get to your solution? Uh-huh. Right? And it also communicates that you actually talked to somebody and thought about what they said. At least I think so. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I see that too. And so how do we encourage people to tell their stories better? And I, people are reticent to put their failures, but I learn the most when I actually bring people on site for interviews. I love that. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You learn the most. I feel like obviously nobody's perfect. And like, why would you try and pretend to be perfect in an interview? Because the interviewer has made a billion mistakes. It's like, let's talk about it and figure out where we align and like how how you recover from mistakes. And then maybe we'll see if this is a, a good approach. Right. We had a candidate in last week who we asked this question because the person asserted that a requirement shouldn't have been a requirement. I'm like, okay, but we get those all the time. Yeah. And you didn't agree. So what did you do about that? Well, I just said, okay, fine. If that's what you want, that's what I'll give you. But that's why I didn't accept their full-time offer. Hmm. And I was a little surprised. Like, really? You just decided, huh, okay. I won't play your game anymore. I'm going to take my toys and go home. That's hmm. like not resilient enough. Right? Entitled millennials. <laughs> I tell you. You tell said you. it. These youngsters. Me. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, it was a surprising. <laughs> you were thinking it. No, I wasn't. <laughs> but uh, but it was a surprising response to me because yeah. I thought these, this is what design does all the time. We evaluate trade-offs, benefits, and try mm. to find the right fit between the business needs and the customer needs. And we always have those constraints. So a huge part of what we do is influence. Have you found yourself in a position where the two are mutually exclusive where you think the business needs do not align at all with with what you think is best from the design perspective all the time how do you deal with it well then we have conversations uh-huh. right and we you don't bring pack customers up and in no i don't <laughs> no no we have conversations we bring customers in and we try to tease through what way can we meet those business requirements and solve the customer's problem mm-hmm. and do we have to have i mean most of the times it has to do with advertising right like we have to pay the bills, so we put ads everywhere, and customers don't like ads, and designers mm-hmm. don't like ads. So I don't want to dedicate one pixel of space to your stinking ad, right? But we have to because we have to pay the bills. So how do we do what it? What if in all a way? ads were one pixel? <laughs> <laughs> no, I so, want a startup pixel. idea. One yeah. pixel ads <laughs> <laughs> that we could track. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's just the tracking pixel. <laughs> Holy moly! We know you were here. Uh, <laughs> what a world we live in because that is yeah. I know but there's a way to, there's a way to blend it in a way that's not offensive right. that you don't get blindness to and you know that that actually fits into the flow mm-hmm. right. um you've been designing for 30 years now do I have that number right if I'm going off your yes. LinkedIn account actually that's yes true in technology yeah oh we should go back no, before I got into tech, I was, <laughs> no, no, I, was a, no, I was a teacher. So I think it goes to what you said about design, what people think designers are. So I think everybody in the world designs at a certain level, right? It's just that we focus on digital technology, right? But when I was a teacher, I designed curriculum, and that's actually what led me the, into designing applications, OSs. Let's talk about that transition. Had, had, you, had you always wanted to go into teaching? Was that like a determined path early on? Um, I think I got clear about it when I was in high school. Okay. Um, 
I'm good at it. It's, you know, you kind of assess what are your strengths, yeah. where are your challenges, where are your growth opportunities. And I tried a lot of different, they weren't internships because I'm old, uh, but I was a candy striper in a hospital because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. A what? Candy striper. The dresses had stripes oh, on them. Yeah, so it was a volunteer. You went into the hospital and did a volunteer job, like distributing flowers or, uh-huh. I don't know, lots of different activities. And we had to wear these little outfits. It was like a pink skirt with a striped apron. Candy striper. Yeah. It looked like candy. Yeah, it looked like ribbon candy. Got it. I, yeah, I know. Um, that might lead us into a whole world of gender discrimination and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway because there were no boy candy stripers uh but i learned through that experience that i really didn't like medicine it smelled it you know it was fast paced it was noisy people really didn't want to be in the hospital they didn't yeah. you know like it's a very challenging environment um so i learned through that experience i didn't want to do that i did a bunch of camp counseling that i loved Mm-hmm. And so that's where I thought, okay, what can I do that's similar to this? And design wasn't a thing in those days. Uh huh. What was the the time frame for reference? Uh, the early seventies. We're saying technology design wasn't a thing then, right? Graphic design was obviously graphic design was a career path if you were good at art and you were a guy. Hmm. So, and I'm not, I've never been a visual person. That's that's not a side of it we necessarily hear from the 70s. <laughs> I no. did not know that it was like a, design was a gender specific role at the time. Everything was gender specific. In the 70s? In the 70s, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that was the era in which, well, it started earlier than that, but really that's 60s, 70s is when the feminist movement, mm, first sure. wave, whatever, let's not go there. Um, or we can if you want. Uh, <laughs> but when women started doing non-typical women roles, because really when I was little, all of the games that we were given and toys that we were given, dolls, you know, were about being a teacher, a nurse, or a secretary. It wasn't about mm. being anything else vp of design at lending club vp of design at lending club yeah <laughs> right that's gonna be a hot selling toy this year <laughs> i know the vp of design barbie <laughs> yes, yes right uh-huh yeah oh god we could go into the outfit for that one i know so a few women were going into medicine but it was hard a few women were going into law but it was hard i mean the current presidential you know race that we have going if you're paying attention to hillary's stories it's the same story, you know. Um, there was a lot of, yeah, it was hard. Yeah. So. And you ended up teaching. I did end up teaching. I did. How long did you do that for? I taught for five years. Okay. What'd you teach? I taught mostly fifth grade. I did um, fifth and sixth grade bilingual in Hayward, South Hayward, and third grade there, which was my absolute favorite. Did some high school. And then in Menlo Park, I taught fifth grade. Uh, and then everything. what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? What happened was it started early. Um, Apple had a program of getting computers into schools. Mm-hmm. And because I was working in a very low socioeconomic population, we had Title I funds, which give schools extra money to support kids who have higher learning needs. And the school chose to buy Apple computers. And they were sitting in a conference, like in a classroom. That was the computer lab. And nobody was using them. 
I was the youngest person on the staff, and the next youngest person was about 10 or 15 years older than I was. Yeah. And they weren't interested. It was one more thing they had to learn. They were a little scared. So I thought, okay, well, these are paid for by my program. I should use them. So, And I'd already started fooling around with computers. And uh, anyway, so I kept using them as a teaching tool, and I saw the power of motivating kids Mm -hmm. to really get engaged. And we didn't have great software applications at the time. It was a lot of drill and skill stuff. And um, but they got excited. It was something different. And we had Turtle Logo, you know, which is like Lego logo. So they could start a little programming. Uh So it really was a good way to get kids engaged in directing their own learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm a big fan of constructivist education, which is meeting people where they are. It works in technology too. Anyway, so through those five years, I got more and more interested in the power of technology. And Apple had a big education department. And I thought, okay, I want to get out of the classroom and go there and influence from that side of the fence. Mm -hmm. So I started investigating how I could do that, informational interviews. And I took a technical writing class because lots of people were doing that. And it was similar to doing curriculum design. And in the midst of it, I got offered a tech writing contract at Apple through my landlady, who was a tech writer at Apple at the time. (laughs) Good connection. (laughs) It was awesome. Like, I didn't ask her. One day she came. She knew what I was up to, and she'd introduced me to her network. Mm -hmm. And they'd introduced me to their networks. You know, it's how- LinkedIn. LinkedIn. (laughs) Yes. The sneaker net version of LinkedIn. Uh And so anyway, one day she came into my cottage and she said, hey, Lori, I've got too much work. I've got this project. I can't do it in the time they need it. I asked Karen, who was her supervisor, if I could subcontract it. I promised her if you failed that I would finish it, but I know you won't. Can you do it? And I looked at her and I thought, wow, yeah, I can do it, but really? (laughs) So that's how I made that leap. Hmm. And... And you joined Apple? Um, Later. I contracted for 18 months first. But even on that first job, it was a user guide. They used to ship them in boxes. I don't know if you've ever seen one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a book. What? I know, right? Uh, And it was for a tape backup guide. You probably don't know what that is. It's a device that would back up the computer. Tape Tape backup 40SC, right? Um, Can you write it from memory? Can you still write the entire guide? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. No, that was a long time ago. Anyway, I sat down with an engineer to try to figure out what it was and what people needed to learn. And he said to me, hey, Lori, can you help me with this? I said, I guess so. What do you need? And he said, well, I'm an electrical engineer. I know how to make the mechanism run, but I have no idea what the screen should say or what the user should do. Mm -hmm. Can you do that? And I said, sure, I could do that. I had no clue what I was getting into, yeah. but I had the confidence that I could do it. Yeah. So that's how I got started. So even, you know, that was my first design project. Would you say that was accidental? Oh, now we're getting spiritual. Mm. Were you destined to become a designer? I think so, mm. right? At some level. Yeah. I mean, I had this intention to go work at Apple and I landed there. Yeah. And so the engineer asked you, can you design this thing for can the Can you design screen? the software, the, the application? And that was the first time that you'd designed software? Yes. Where did it go from there? 
where to go from there? Well, I wrote technical books for a while. Um, and, you know, I did... All for tape backups? No. No, it was a bunch of other SCSI <laughs> devices. That was my devices. specialty, actually. <laughs> SCSI devices was... So I have, mm. I have a name plaque that I carry with me and put up in every desk or cube I have that says SCSI Princess because that became my moniker at Apple because <laughs> I was the only one who knew how it worked <laughs> and could explain it to people. Um, so I did do that for a while, a bunch of SCSI devices and then other user guides. And then I moved, Apple was getting into the Unix world. So I moved on to the AUX team. And one day somebody came to me. Is that and said, Apple user experience? No, Apple Unix. Oh, ah. <laughs> wow. We didn't wow, have Wow, how it. acronyms have changed. I was like, or is that like an aux port? <laughs> <laughs> we did call it aux. No, it was, you know, it was an oper- it was a yeah. hybrid operating system. Mostly got sold into the government. And that was when I had a spiritual crisis because I thought I always wanted to work for companies that didn't do anything with the military. Mm. I'm a card-carrying member of the uh, War Resisters League, but... Um, not that I disrespect, I really am grateful for what the military does for us, but at that time I, you know, didn't want it. And then I discovered, oh, every company does something with the government and the mm-hmm. military, like all these companies, Microsoft, Apple, Did you think HP, about leaving? IBM. I did think about it, but ultimately when I had that realization that there isn't anywhere that you can go that doesn't have some finger <laughs> And then you think, okay, what is the mission of the company and am I aligned with that, Uh right? Do you remember what the mission was at the time? Changing the world one person at a time. Wow. And I still bleed six colors. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Wow, die hard. I know. (laughs) They got you. They did. They did. I bought hook, line, and sinker. So one day somebody came to me and said, hey, Lori, you never shut up about the user. We need to rewrite these guidelines. (laughs) 30 years later. We have this whole Macintosh platform. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And? And, and I did. Yeah, so then I started working on the Macintosh human interface guidelines, which took a really long time, like two years, because I had to work with every part of the company and find out what was going on in all parts of the, all the layers of the system. And then figure out how best to communicate it so developers could make good decisions. We chat a little bit about this, but they're guidelines. Yep. And a lot of times the guidelines are in conflict with each other. So then you have to go back to the core principles of design for the platform and figure out which one makes, which what trumps in this situation. Mm-hmm. Where do you land with a good experience? You specify the Macintosh HIG. Mm-hmm. So are there other HIGs? Like where where does that fit in with all of Apple now we have... Is it just the HIG now? Just well, there's no no uh, right pre word. There's an iOS HIG and there's a macOS HIG. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think there's a tvOS HIG and probably, probably a watch HIG. Mm. Yeah, I haven't sure. messed with the TV one or the watch one. Mm. Yeah, but I know the iOS and Mac one's like the back of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so this is early HIG writing for the Macintosh late. What was that like? How did you think about this document? Coming from like the user perspective, from the developer perspective, like what was that process like? So the developers were the users at that Mm -hmm. time. I mean, they still are, right? Yeah. So it's a document for how to create products that are consistent with the Mac experience at that time. And there was a predecessor, the Apple HIG, and it was focused on the Apple Apple II, Apple I and II line of computers. Mm -hmm. So what I thought about was who's 
who needs this information and how do they need to use it? When are they going to use it? And what's the best form to deliver it in? And I worked with a couple of guys, Scott Jensen and um, blanking on the other guy right now. Uh, I'll think of it. Anyway, they were sort of the in in the core OS design group. And so the three of us kind of got together and tried to figure out how are we going to take what we're building and translate it into a system that developers can understand and build on. And so we spent months and months going through every layer of the system and then looking at a lot of applications that existed at the time. And back then, Apple had this kind of schizophrenia about are we just a hardware platform or are we full stack? Do we do our own applications? So there was a time Mm -hmm. when they built the core apps for the Mac and then they spun that out into Claris Mm -hmm. and then they brought it back. Um, and so they were trying to develop a third-party developer network, um, and people were going rogue. We can't have that, of course, mm-hmm. because that won't serve the end user. And I think it's in the DNA of Apple that they're trying to create products for people that are useful. So they wanted to leverage that. So we spent a really long time going through what are all the pieces and parts that developers need, and now how do we create the system that they can use and understand And at some point, we decided we needed to show as well as tell. So we built out a team that did a companion piece that was an interactive uh, guidelines. I don't know if you ever saw that. I don't know. I haven't seen that. Oh, I could have brought it with me. I have it. It's on a um, CD. A what? I I wouldn't know how to use that. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) How do you you use this? I have a super drive in a bin somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was decluttering and I found everything from five and a quarter inch disks Uh to (laughs) zip drives, you know, all this stuff. Oh, zip drives. Oh, yeah. Those were fun. Remember that? So when when did you finish the Macintosh HIG or when was that released? Um, It was released in 1992. And I actually didn't finish it. I had a baby. Mm-hmm. So That'll it, yeah. throw a wrench into the mix. I know. Between final draft and heading off to the publisher, I went into labor. So a friend of mine actually put tied yeah. the yeah. last bow on it before it got shipped out. So 14, 24 years. 24 years. Um, yeah. How did you look at being prescriptive versus descriptive when you were explaining how people should build for this um were there specific like pixel by pixel guidelines at the time or was it pretty broad still we didn't have pixel by pixel guidelines i mean there were uh descriptions for icon sizes Mm -hmm. as there need to be um and this was remember the stone age uh (laughs) we didn't even have multi-finder then if you know what that is Mm -hmm. it was basically you were in one application at a time and you had to quit out of that application before you could open another one Mm -hmm. um and then over the course of time we added in multi-finder so you could have multiple windows from different apps open and then sharing of data between applications and then drag and drop and you know all that evolution of experience so um There were elements of the OS at the time that we had to be very descriptive about in Mm -hmm. order to get a level of consistency and predictability for users. And then there's the subtlety of when do you break out of those guidelines. And how we tried to address that was by giving the core principles and then 
some case studies about how you could make the trade-offs. Um, and I had written a whole bunch of content that after I went on maternity leave got axed from the book um, about that had more pres- not prescription, but g- guidance. Okay. Like, you know, here are some scenarios in which the principles are at conflict and how we think they should be resolved. Do you have an example of that? Oh. Off the top of your head, I know that's... Of principles in conflict uh-huh. or yeah. from that time? Because I think about that often, like when principles are in conflicts and mm-hmm. like how that conflict changes over time as the way people interact with technology changes, as the devices change, like when does one just become obvious? Uh, right. I mean, there are some core principles about how the human brain works, like recognition over recall, um, which, you know, you never want to trump that unless you know that the user has a way to look things up in the moment that they can apply. So you want to, you know, that mostly plays out in terms of how do you put choices on a screen um, and how do you guide users through a flow? Like if you can show them the obvious next step, they don't have to think about it. You know, somebody wrote that book, Don't Make Me Think, Mm -hmm. right? That's the core principle of the brain cognition at play there. Um, cause the cognitive overload will interrupt the user flow and they might, you might get, lose them. They'll right? drop out of the funnel. They'll drop out of the funnel. <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> or, you know, get distracted or mm-hmm. get angry and create a mess in your application and call your help people and, you know, um, and then stop using your product, which is what none of us want. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Sorry, I'm not coming up with a more specific example, but I That's think fine. I think about it all the time. Um, when is ease of learning more important than ease of use over time? Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to think about the learning curve. Uh huh. And when is it worth making people go through a learning curve that has a high slope, but then whatever you do is so obvious that they no longer think about it? Right. So. Okay. So labels on everything versus like keyboard shortcuts kind of thing or? No, you need both. Um, there, there is uh, a guideline about making things obvious and that keyboard shortcuts are always a redundant access to mm. a feature. And I think we've forgotten that over time. I was struggling with Duolingo. Um, I went on a trip this summer to Guatemala and I was trying to polish up my Spanish. And I didn't know how to generate the accent character, the enye, the tilde. And I kept getting this feedback, right, but pay attention to the accents. And I'm like, well, I don't know where the other keyboard is where I can generate those characters. So one day, I accidentally left my finger on the soft keyboard on the phone too long and Voila. popped up. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> hidden. No hints. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No way to discover it. Yeah. No I, user guide. I learned you can actually do that on the, the hyphen and do M dashes <gasps> on iOS. I didn't know that. And I only type those now. Well, that's wow. amazing. I know. What's amazing? He even knows what an M dash is. Mm. M dash is the best symbol. And A- where to use ask, it? Ask Bryn uh, all about M dashes and he'll tweet at you. Excellent. <laughs> no, stop. Okay, and what's um, your philosophy on French spacing? I don't have one. 
Um, You've lost are, me there, Laura. About, <laughs> You've lost me. Are no. you talking about like Geeky the writer stuff? The narrow spaces. I've never heard the term French space. Yes, it's it's well, it used to be a raging debate in the Apple technical Whoa. writing department. Do we use French spacing or not? It's whether you use one space or two spaces after a period. Oh, one, one space. One two spaces are See? nonsense. What do you yeah. think? Are you a two spacer? I think it depends oh. on the style guide you're following. Okay. You have to know your context and your user. I do remember being- That's a very diplomatic answer. No, it's a true <laughs> answer. <laughs> I do recall being trained to do two spaces in my like, yes. first yes. typing class, mm-hmm. but I was like, nah, this is nonsense. <laughs> it's AP style and um, whatever that graduate, you know, when you write papers in graduate Th- school. Thesis. Theses. Yeah. I think- Maybe the, I don't know, APA style. Going back to some of the obvious stuff, um, how, do you feel like modern software is still upholding some of those core principles of making things obvious, explaining what next steps are, reducing the amount people have to think? Like, are we doing a good job? Or ha- like, examples come to mind of things that are just hard to do or like less recognizable. And I think for me, iOS has started to go back in some ways, like actually adding borders to buttons and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we get too in our own heads. Um, and No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we make things really, we design for ourselves sometimes too much. So we make things really less obvious and we get it. And, you know, I'm humbled and honored that I even can have a conversation with people who I think are awesome designers here and elsewhere that, you know, like I, I'm old, so I don't consider myself part of the we most of the time, but I get it. You know, I use technology. Things are easy for me that aren't necessarily easy for my peers who went off in different fields. Um, and so I think we really get caught up in flat design, material design, you know, it means something to us and we have fun creating it. But then at the end of the day, if the user can't figure it out, we failed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? Can I go back to one thing that you mm-hmm. said about being prescriptive or descriptive? I think that we created the interactive guidelines because we wanted to help people get it at a more core level okay. that they might not understand reading the text yeah. in a book, right? And so that's why we created those examples to be more descriptive Mm-hmm. and less prescriptive and give people more license, I think, but understanding in the context of use. What was the impact when you published or when the HIG was published, the Macintosh HIG? Uh, was it hard to sell developers on using this thing? Think of like the current, in the no, current world arguments, like style guides, right? they couldn't wait to get it. Hmm. They couldn't wait because Apple was the platform to be on if you were a cool developer, yes. right? And Still doing- is. Cutting edge, mm-hmm. I know. Um, they, cut- they really captured that, like, cool. Yeah. Don't know why, but... yeah. Um, it's all about the marketing, you know? Allure, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnny Ive. What? <laughs> what? No, he's he's the marketing. <laughs> oh. He what lives in the white Johnny space. <laughs> yeah. Oh, white space is your friend, always. That's not in the guidelines anywhere, but it should have been. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> White space question mark? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I forgot the question. Uh, Developers were eager to jump on this. What was the impact? They they couldn't wait to get it because they all wanted to be on the platform and they all wanted to fit in with what was going on with Apple because it was a way for them to sell their products. And if they could 
you know, be part of the Apple, Apple ecosystem, it was their ticket to customer acquisition, mm-hmm. right? And so they they wanted to have kind of the Apple stamp of approval. So they needed the guidelines to understand how do I do this, which will then by fiat have the allure of being Apple, mm-hmm. sure, a product for Apple. Sure. Yeah. How, how did you think about the impact you'd have on creating like system defaults and explaining to people when's the right time to not use system defaults? How did I think about the impact of that? Yeah. Like, I think... That goes back to consistency. Right. Right? And we had long debates about consistency, right? Um, Because it's a core principle of the MHIG, of all HIGs, I think, um, and decreasing that cognitive load. But sometimes you need to go outside of consistency to create a better experience. So you have to weigh... Again, that cognitive load that you're going to create for people of not doing it the way everybody else is doing it and making them think, and what's the benefit of it? Do they get that dopamine rush when they figure it out? And they're like, oh, I get it in this context. Snapchat. Yeah. Do you use Snapchat? I do not. It's <laughs> it's one of the social networks that I have not adopted. It's the worst. It's also the one my kids use the most, and I think they don't want me mm. uh, yeah. privy to what they're putting on Snapchat. My mom joined Twitter. And followed me. That's sweet. It was sweet, but yeah. I think of like Snapchat's did you even her more. Back? Of course, I did. <laughs> of Does course. she tweet? No, oh. no, I don't think so. Is your mom my generation? Uh-huh. I think I think about this because what I see with the generation that followed me, and of course your generation, is the ability to create content and make it public exists now when it didn't before when I was coming up. To publish a book, you know, was really hard mm-hmm. um, or any, we didn't have the web. We didn't have social networks, you know. So to create content and get it out into the world was really challenging. So I think also we grew up during the Cold War era when there was a lot of secrecy and privacy issues. And I wonder how yeah, much- Yeah, those have really gone away. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well- Yeah, I know. Um, But I think I didn't grow up in an era in which I was living publicly. Mm. And I wonder if that's why I'm so reticent to publish. I don't know. I'm reticent to publish, but I didn't grow up in the Cold War, so I'm not sure. But you We're connecting on... Okay. Right? I don't tweet very much. Yeah, you were completely after the Cold War. Yes, I was. Um, I don't know. I feel like we connect on some level. Because I'm not a Snapchatter. You're not oh, a Snapchatter. No. Are you an Instagram storyer? I'm not. Really? Really? Have you used Instagram stories? No. But I like them. Hmm. Ditto. <laughs> I like it a lot better than normal Instagram. <laughs> yeah. It's, again, to me, to curate that content and think about it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. I spend all day kind of trying to help people create stuff and help them make the right decisions and unblock issues and you know empower good design to happen and then i get home and my brain's kind of fried Uh (laughs) (laughs) one thing i'm interested in is sometimes i talk to people who have come into design from a non-design background Mm -hmm. uh and have this so literally everyone well most (laughs) most people feel have this feeling of like an imposter syndrome kind of thing and then sometimes people that come from a design background like i've been doing this since 
high school to a design degree maybe don't feel that as strongly. And you came from like a bunch of different things to teaching, to technical writing, to design. Did you ever have a feeling of imposter syndrome? Oh, big time. Do you still have it? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, I go to work some days and I think, when are they going to figure out that I shouldn't have this role? And I, yeah, I'm very hypercritical too. Self-hypercritical. Um, Which I think I find a lot of designers have the perfectionism mm -hmm. character defect. Um, and a lot of the mentoring I do with my team is about when is it good enough and how to let go because we can always make something really perfect, but we might not ship it then. Yeah. You so you know. never got over this feeling of being found out? No. Does that slow you down at all? Um, does it slow me down? In what way? Like being afraid of getting found out, maybe taking fewer risks. Like I don't really know what I'm doing. No, I don't think it ever has because I think my whole career has been about taking risks and going where I didn't think I was really qualified and sometimes I wasn't, and I didn't last very long, and, you <laughs> okay. know, and then you go on to the next thing, and you learn. You take the lessons with you, right? So, did you ever have a career plan? You're like, okay, I've designed the Macintosh HIG. Here's where I go next. No. <laughs> no. Um, I... No, I've been very intuitive about my whole career. Although I have to say, when I once I figured out I wanted to be a teacher, I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I went to college. I did five years and four because I had to get out and start earning money. And I did. Actually, I took a year off and went to Spain and tried to learn Spanish better. Same thing. <laughs> didn't get uh -huh. a job the first few sure. times I interviewed. And then I woke up one day when I was 28 and thought, oh. I've accomplished everything I ever imagined I would. Now what? And that's when I started thinking about, okay, what do I really want to do? And when I decided I wanted to jump from being in a teacher into developing educational technology, which, by the way, haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> hey, you know, there's still time. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so I think, you know, I don't ever have a plan. I wasn't looking for this job. Um, when I was recruited there, but it seemed like such a cool opportunity that the more I learned about it and the more I thought about what is the next step in my career, it made sense. And there was enough about the role that met with what I do love to do and what I'm good at that I said, sure, I can do that. And I have a big learning curve and it's sometimes painful, but. Um, so let's go through it a little bit. You yeah. were at Apple for 10 years. 10 years. I contracted for 18 months okay. and then I was there for eight and a half years okay. on staff. You, 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 can work a, you can work a job that long? Don't you have to leave every two years? Yeah. Well, there was the period <laughs> then after Apple that I did leave every two years. Mm -hmm. um, but a somewhat funny, not really story about that was when I was at... <laughs> really selling this one. <laughs> I know. No, I was at Motorola and I had been at a startup that was acquired and... You know, my team had moved around and, and we landed in a um, part of the organization where we were doing um, media management and sync. And, you know, everybody has tons of photos, videos, music, files, and nobody knows how to manage all of it or where to put it. And it was pre Dropbox, Box, all of the storage, you know, cloud storage solutions. Mm -hmm. Anyway, 
We were looking at getting some um, augmenting the team with some small consulting companies. And I was a little bit late to one of the meetings. And I walked in and um, they said, oh, Lori, we were looking at your LinkedIn profile. And this is my team from Motorola and this company that we're talking to to see if we want to either contract with them or acquire them. And I said, well, why were you looking at my LinkedIn profile? Um, And they said, oh, Jackie wanted to know if you were the Lori Kaplan from Apple. And I looked up and there was a guy, Jackie Macapanpan, that I had worked with at Apple. I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? And so we had our little moment of, you know, reconnecting. And this guy from Motorola said to me, what's the matter with you? Can't you keep a job? And I was horrified um, that they were talking about me and my career in this conversation. So he said, well, you moved, you were at Apple, and then you've moved every two years. What's the deal? And I said, we can talk about it later. Uh, Can we not do this in a public setting, please? (laughs) Basically, you know, this is Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of opportunities out here. So the the backstory is at Motorola, people are there their whole careers. And every time I went to Chicago, because half the team was there, in the kitchen, they would be having a 20th anniversary celebration or a 25th anniversary or a 30th or a 35th. Mm. So people just didn't move. So to encounter someone who was in the hotbed of Silicon Valley where there's always some cool new thing to go do, they didn't understand that why you would ever leave a job. Uh-huh. So that it was interesting for me. How do you account for that now, now that you're building a team and you know that the average lifespan of a designer is... Probably closer to like one year? Um, lifespan. <laughs> you phrase that. The, <laughs> the company lifespan. On a team. Actually, I think looking at what engages people, and my company pays a lot of attention to engagement. We do an engagement survey every six months, and it's a constant theme of conversation for in the leadership. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for the whole company. Um, and looking over time at how do you retain people, um, I haven't had very many people on my teams leave after a year. I get a a better retention term than that. But I think it has to do with, I always look at sports teams and how managers of teams lead because I think it's analogous in a certain way to what we do. People have different skills. You have to set them up for success. And they all have to um, play together in order to get a good outcome. So I kind of look at how do I set up people and match the work we have with the skills that they have and the growth opportunities they need to keep them engaged. So if you can get that fit right, people tend to stay for a long time. Hmm. I think it's when people feel they're not growing or people feel like the company culture doesn't fit them or something with the leadership um and it seems like there's always one of those i don't know i like that seems i i don't know many designers that stay around at jobs longer than four years at least but two years is like the average right yeah yeah so i mean when i'm hiring i'm looking for people who i think it's worth investing in and who are going to stick around um how do you judge that History is a good judge, right? (laughs) Uh And then- um, Which sucks for maybe a younger designer, right? Well, younger designers, you know, what do they say in the financial industry? Previous performance does not necessarily guarantee future or whatever. Uh Um, 
So younger designers, um, you know, that's all about the growth opportunities and really making sure that people are getting the coaching and mentoring that they need and have meaningful work and being in constant conversation. You know, you have to know who people are and what what they find engaging, what they find challenging, what they want to do next. Um, so, yeah. At I what did, point in your career did you switch from doing the, I guess, IC work, the, 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 the pixel stuff, the documentation stuff, to the people management side and managing other designers and helping with that career trajectory? Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I had a retail job and I ended up in a management role. I mean, I, I always end up in management it's something about my skills and personality. <laughs> I don't know. So in in tech, it was at Netflix, I think, was the first time. I was hired there by a friend of mine who we'd been at, we'd actually been at Apple, Netscape, and Intuit together. Wow. And she left Intuit and went to Netflix and then called me and said, hey, I have this really cool opportunity. I think you have to come talk to me. Uh-huh. So... I said, no, 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 you know, Nancy, I've been laying the groundwork for this, you know, platform change, design change for two years. I don't think it's a good time to leave. Just just come talk. So I went and talked and I fell in love instantaneously and decided to move to Netflix because I've always loved movies. So awesome. Um, and after about four months, she took a personal leave and asked me to act in her role her title then was creative director um but it's sort of more of a director of ux or you know director of design role and so she said while i'm on leave can you just cover my job and i said no and then she said please there's nobody (laughs) else and i said no i really love what i'm doing i don't want to manage um and then her boss came to me and said just do it while she's on leave I promise. It, it, we just need somebody to cover. You know the team. You know the company. Just keep things percolating, okay? So I said, okay, I'll do it. But I'm still going to do my design job, okay? And they're like, sure, sure. Great. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so long story short, she never came back to work at Netflix. And by the time that was probably about three months went by, I decided I really loved it. And I was kind of doing an okay job at it. So they then gave me the role permanently. So that's when I first made the switch. And um, it was really hard to let go because when you're in leadership, really hard to have the time to dedicate to the design details that you need, like Ding. how I did that, um, to really hone a design and to sit with the engineers and to go through the QA process. Um, so that, yeah, so I did that for a while. And then when I left there and went to Netscape, I went into a management role as well. And then Netscape had been acquired by AOL and we got moved into the AOL studio. Worst fit job of my life. Oh no. Oh yeah. It was bad. Um, and so after a year, I, they did a big layoff and I was part of it and I danced out of the building. Oh, no. I was so happy because I was really unhappy. But when I get unhappy, I don't really have the energy to sell myself and to get another job. You kind of have to pull your story mm-hmm. together and tell why you're great. And 
Did you buckle down and like go harder on AOL or were you still skeptical? Okay. I did. I did. And I was working with a really cool team. I worked for many companies on products with the name Communicator, but basically we were doing internet email for the AOL crowd um, and rebuilding what had been the Netscape monolith in a much more, you know, structured way. And anyway, mm-hmm. the same thing we're all doing now with microservices we were doing back then. And I keep wondering, why don't these guys get it when they start building? Like, hmm. we know what We've to seen do. this before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I took a year off at that point and remodeled my house and took my family on a trip to Europe and worked at my kid's school and did some volunteer projects thinking about what I would do next. And I thought, okay, this is my opportunity to get out of tech and to do something different. And then I started getting phone calls. And then they reeled you back in. They reeled me back in. So I said, okay, I will do this on a contract basis part-time and only as an individual contributor. It was a company called Good Technology, which I don't know if they exist anymore because they just got bought by BlackBerry, Mm. which was our evil competitor at the time. Um, So I went and was there about a week when the VP of engineering called me in and said, hey, can you build me a team? And I said, yeah, I can do that. As a contractor, sure. As a contractor, (laughs) yeah, I can do that. Contract VP. No, it wasn't. They had one guy there who was also a contractor, um, John Mann, who's a really awesome designer you should talk to also. Um, so anyway, I built a team and then they said, well, we don't want to lose you. Do you want to take the director job? And I said, no, I told you part-time individual contributor. And they said, okay, okay. So I said, I'll help you find a director. So I did that. And then I went permanent part-time. Um, so fast forward, we started fooling around with the iPhone came out. We were a mobile play. We were multi cross-platform PIM, um, push email, which was new at the time, but we was becoming ubiquitous, commoditized. So we thought, okay, what's next? So we started fooling around with the iPhone and um, social networks had kind of emerged at that time. And there was a project that was created that eventually became the first Android Motorola phone um, and operating system. And that team went off into a dark project and our director went off with it after a while. And so then they said, hey, Laura, do you want this job? I said, no, I want to be an individual contributor. And they're like, okay. I said, I'll help you find a director. So we looked really hard for six months and I was acting in the meantime. <laughs> and and the perfect person for the job decided not to take it. Uh, and so then they said, okay, you've been doing this for six months. Why don't you just take the job? And I said, okay, as long as I can stay part-time, I'll take the job. So I was working like 30, 32 hours a week at that time. So that's when I did it. And I said, okay, but I'm keeping these two projects because I have to ship them. I ended up having to hand them over. I know. And I had to cry. Like, I didn't want to let go of my baby. You know, it was that painful. But since then, I've been in leadership. Yeah. And it's one of the hard things because I love to design what's next like not in terms of next jobs but like you've done ic you've done management now you're a vp at at a company building a team like where do designers go after that point is it (laughs) where do all designers go when they die (laughs) (laughs) if that's how you want to think about it sure no i don't know um do you want to design forever designers go to the white space is the answer (laughs) 
Johnny I answer. love that answer. They go into the light. Yes. Um, where do designers go? That's a good question. So a lot of my friends who've had really successful exits or got fed up and didn't want to keep doing design in the way that we do it in Silicon Valley have gone off to chase their passions. So they're, you know, artists or, um, you know, I don't know, lots of different things. Sure. Um, somebody opened an antique store and, you know, like all kinds of different things. So I think people can stay in design for a long time until you're, um, I mean, we don't really have voice interfaces to our design tools yet. Yet. So a lot of people get wrist and hand problems and that's what forces them into either leadership or out of the field because they physically can't do it anymore. Um, but I think the creative problem solving can always be done. And so I think about what's next for me, and I'm just trying to struggle about how do I even think about that? And so I think, do I want to start my own company? Probably not, because it requires a level in, of investment that I don't want to take on, because I value other aspects of my life that I want to have time for. And I keep thinking I'm either going to go into ed tech somewhere or close the loop. Close the loop. Or, but I, I mean, anyway, I look at that or I think, well, I want to do something that's really resonant with my passions about making the world better. And I don't know what that is yet. So I keep thinking about what. It's a pretty are, broad problem. <laughs> right? Uh -huh. What are my passions and how do I want to use my energy in the next phase of my life? And how can I take my skills and experiences and really leverage the strengths that I have? into some new forum and I don't know what it is. And so that's when I get back into my imposter syndrome. Like I just, I met this woman this summer who started a non-governmental organization in Guatemala and I went on a service trip and it was amazing. And I thought, how did she do that? I wanna do something like that. Do I have the energy to do something like that? The striking thing to me is you say you have this imposter syndrome and mm -hmm. I believe you because you say that. <laughs> But then you also have this incredible appetite for risk and pushing yourself to do things that you're not sure you can do. Like, how how do you reconcile those two things and somehow keep going from one step to the next? I think denial is a useful tool. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really good at compartmentalization. Okay. Yeah, it's a really good insight. I do, I'm not scared of risk. And I guess even though p failure is painful, I learn so much. Mm -hmm. And I'm really resilient, I think. Resiliency is probably key. I think that's going back to like the beginning of the conversation, talking to people about what they do and they fail. Mm -hmm. It's pretty insightful, right? Mm -hmm. Like, It sounded like giving up was more painful than failure, though. Oh, I never give up. Well, giving up. <laughs> Sometimes give, I giving should. Up, giving up your babies at, at like to be a director and stuff. Oh, like, yeah. That was hard because then you have to let somebody else do what was your vision, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think when – and I think it is a downfall of designers is that we get really deeply invested in our own work. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to let go of that. Are designers too emotional or is that, <laughs> is that good? Is that, is that good? What does that even mean? Should Are, designers emote? Should we, should we be that invested? Should we be so invested that when – someone else else works on our project it like physically hurts and we feel a pain to give up 
Oh, physically hurts. Physically hurts. That's a strong one. Yeah. yeah, I think I think people do get sick doing our kind of work. Um, I I don't I don't think there's. I guess I'm struggling with the definition of being emotional and getting deeply invested in your own work, right? Um, so this is I, coming from a conversation I recently had where. A person's preconception of what designer means is an emotional person. And I think I see that. Like designers uh, get very passionate about, like you said, the perfectionism and ownership and the vision that you come up with in your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And perhaps that's true of, of other fields, but I don't think other fields have that reputation of being so emotionally connected to these screens that we're building. Yes, I see that. Um, But I think it's a bad rap. Um, I think that people maybe who self-select into design have greater access to and greater awareness of their emotions and are more expressive in general. Hmm. Broad generalization, right? Broad Um, strokes always work, huh? (laughs) (laughs) No danger there. But, you know... Are we more emotional than any other field? I don't know. You know, do we have the pitfalls of passion and overinvestment? Yeah. I think we have to temper all of that in two ways. One, we have to remember that we're getting paid to do this work, right? And there's a difference between our own creative work and what we're producing on behalf of a business. And then the other thing is always get back to the user, right? Because we're a sample of one. And if you design for yourself, it's going to be great for you. But is it going to work for anybody Mm -hmm. else in the world, right? So I think that's a technique we have to always use to ground ourselves and to be able to let go. I love it. That's a great framework. Um, And we're actually out of time. So it's a great (gasps) place to end. (laughs) We kind of touched on what you're thinking about next, but we always Mm -hmm. like to end asking what keeps you up at night? Oh, so many things. The election. Currently. <laughs> yeah. Really awful. Mm. Um, how to get my kids successfully launched, you know, let go and, but, but stay connected. Um, I'm seeing products. a pattern here. I'm seeing a pattern. I know, like, right? How do I ship my kids? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, and it's, it's a struggle as a leader too, mm. right? Like, how do you give people the support and empowerment that they need without? helicoptering and being overly controlling stifling right stifling you know so yeah and you've discovered all my inner secrets it's been awesome thanks Thank for you. hanging out oh thanks for having me it's great Work. i always want to say that to terry gross but you guys are even better oh, that is a compliment <laughs> right? thank you yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> if people want to find you online or follow you in some way where's the best place for them to do that um, as we talked about earlier, I'm not very productive in terms of output, but yeah. I am on Twitter. Uh-huh. I follow people on Twitter. I'm more a consumer than a publisher. You can find me on LinkedIn. Yes. I'm actually on Facebook. Okay. I believe I'm findable, but apparently I'm not. Google. Well, your picture isn't you <laughs> on Twitter, which oh. makes it difficult. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I should probably. We'll put links in the show notes. Yeah, links in the links show notes. In the show notes. Awesome. I'm Thanks. Ellie Kaplan, 18, almost everywhere. 
18. Yeah, because there's so many Laurie Kaplans in the world. We talked about that, <laughs> I am right? I the 18th of my name. <laughs> no, but 18 is a lucky number oh. in Hebrew, and it's my birthday. Oh. And so it seemed logical to me. That is very right. logical. Right. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. That's 165. Thank you to Lori for coming and hanging out with us. Thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Every review you leave helps us move up the charts, helps new people like you discover the show. We enjoy reading the reviews. Uh, We've had very critical reviews. We've had very positive reviews. And all along that spectrum, we have a great time reading them and taking feedback. If you just leave us a star rating, that's super helpful. We appreciate everyone that's done that. Uh, If you don't want to do that, just follow us on Twitter. We're sharing all the new episodes, uh, talking about what's coming up. As soon as we do events, we'll be sharing that there. That's at twitter.com slash designdetailsfm. Before we go, we want to thank our two sponsors for this episode. First up, Wayno. They're this insane design agency based out of San Francisco, New York City, and Reykjavik, Iceland. And they're doing incredible work, and you should go check them out right now. You can see their case studies at their website, wayno.co. That's U-E-N-O dot C-O. Or of course, get inspired on their dribble, follow along with their rebranding work on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll have links to all of those in the show notes. But the main one is wayno.co. So thanks again to Wayno for supporting us. Our second sponsor is Managed by Q. They are an operating system for buildings. They take care of all the extra stuff that is this group of operators that manage your building for you, basically. And they treat them like real employees. It's a cool company. It's an amazing service. Design founders, design is part of the culture, and they want you to join their team. They're looking for product designers at their headquarters in New York City. They're willing to relocate. You can learn more by going to spec.fm slash mbq or hitting up JT White in our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. Thanks once again to Managed by Q. We'll see you next week.